Well, I figured um, since Nate started our series last week with a glimpse into the news, I figured I would start this week by a glimpse of the news. But, you know, like not uh, depressing this time. A hundred years ago, a man by the name of Henry Luce changed the way you receive the news. Changed the news permanently. He, he believed that people um, no longer wanted to receive their news in the way of a daily periodical called the newspaper with its eight columns of, of fine point font like the New York Times with no pictures and just all of these dull fact-based descriptions of stuff that had happened in the world that day. Luce decided that people wanted to be able to consume much larger quantities of news in much shorter periods of time. So he and his friend launched a newspaper or launched a news magazine, a word they invented, and they called it Time. It was to be a chronicle of our time, but it was also to save readers time. The whole magazine, which only came once a week, was supposed to be able to be read in 60 minutes, cover to cover. The stories weren't long and boring. They were short and punchy, 200 to 400 words, filled with vivid descriptions, accompanied by glossy color photographs. It was meant to capture people's attention. Within the covers of this magazine were going to be every important event that happened in the world in the last seven days so that in one hour you could be fully caught up on the news. And most importantly, every story and every issue was going to be personal. Um, There would be a black and white portrait of a main feature character on the cover and every story would begin with, this, with how somebody was personally affected by the events that were going to be reported. Because this is what Luce knew. He said this once. He said, people just aren't interesting en masse. He said, people are only exciting as individuals. See, what Henry Luce knew was that if you want people to care, it has to be personal. It's not just true in the world of news media. It's true in the world of caring. Mother Teresa once said, if I look at the mass, I do nothing. But if I look at the one, I will act. Like Henry Luce, Mother Teresa knew that if you wanted people to act, you have to make it personal. And this is the question that hovers over this series is how are we going to participate in what God is going on doing in the world? This is what Nate was talking about last week with all of his depressing news stories about how the world is bad and getting worse. And in particular about the things that we care about in the church, homelessness, you know, our migrant worker friends in their community um, with housing prices and security in Niagara, things seem to be bad and getting worse all the time. And yet, Nate pointed us to the book of Romans in the Bible, chapter 8, where it says that, yes, all of creation, all the whole world is groaning in pain and suffering, but it is simultaneously eagerly anticipating the redemptive, restorative, renewing, recreating work that God is doing. 
And the way that God gets that work done is when his children show up and act like his children. The, the metaphor that Romans uses, that Nate used, was when his children show up and act like midwives, participating in what, in the newness that God is giving birth to in the world as God makes everything new. The question that hung in the air at the end of Nate's talk was very simple. And that is, will you participate? The problem is that we often screen that question according to a personal question that we ask internally when we're confronted with information like that. And that question usually sounds like this. Wait a minute, how does this affect me? All too often, we only choose to get involved when it's personal, right? When it's related to us and our lives or when it's related to the lives of people that we care about, then we will consider how we will get involved. But all too often, when it's not personal, we don't even consider ways that we could be involved. And so even before we think about what we would get involved in, because honestly, you can't be involved in everything. We filter through the stories according to how personal they are, right? That's why we flip the channel when we, uh, a child sponsorship commercial comes on or why we scroll past stories that we don't think have anything to do with us. A coup in Bolivia, wildfires in California, climate change, submerging, low-lying, impoverished countries. Next, that has nothing to do with me. Mother Teresa knew that if people care, it will be because we've made it personal. And the question that I want to ask this morning is this. Is that really the Jesus way? We're going to take a look at a story this morning that many who have been around the church for a while will, have, will know as familiar, will have heard before. A story that Jesus tells about three individuals who were each confronted with the question, will you participate? in bringing healing to the brokenness that exists in the world. And Jesus tells us what each of those three people decided. This is what it says in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 30. It says, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, you have to understand this um, road from Jerusalem to Jericho, 17 miles through the desert in the southern part of Israel, was one of the most dangerous parts of the Middle East in the ancient world. In fact, through much of human history, it was a, a long road that had lots of places for people to hide, but it traveled through the desert, so traffic was sometimes sparse, and robbers could hide in the cracks and the crags and behind the rocks and take advantage of unsuspecting, vulnerable travelers who were making their way from Jerusalem to Jericho, woefully underprotected and unarmed. Jesus says there was a man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the robbers jumped him. And it says that they stole everything they had. And then Jesus provides two details that are of immense importance. They stripped him of his clothes, 
and they left him half dead. See, here's the thing. In the ancient world, in Israel and the surrounding area, there was a many, many, many ethnic groups and religious groups and tribal groups and village clans. There were different people groups of all kinds, but you could always tell which people belonged to which people group by two ways, two methods. Number one, you could look at their clothes. Every village, every clan, every tribe, every religion, every ethnicity, they all had distinctive ways of dressing. So as a stranger approach, you could just look at their wardrobe and you could say, oh, this person belongs to such and such a people group. The other way you could tell was through their language. What language did they speak? What dialect? What accent? What words, what vocabulary did they use? The second you heard a stranger speak, you could say, oh, I know exactly what group you belong to. You knew, and this is why it matters, you knew whether they were your people or whether they were someone else's people. Well, here's the problem with this poor man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. He has been stripped of his clothes. So there was no visual way to identify what tribal group this man belonged to. He was lying in the ditch, half dead. He was unconscious. He couldn't speak. So you could not tell by his language what people group he belonged to. He had been reduced, one commentator said, to the status of generic human being. And the question that confronted people who saw the man lying by the side of the road and could not tell whether that was one of your people or not, the question was, would you still be willing to get involved? Verse 31, Jesus says, a priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, the priest is a part of upper-class Israel. He would have been riding a donkey through the desert because rich people ride and poor people walk in the ancient world. And as he approaches the man, he's coming down the same road, and he can see this body lying in the ditch in the distance, and he knows immediately that the man is in trouble, but the priest immediately has a decision to make. Will I get involved? But here's the priest's problem. Religiously speaking, the rabbis would teach that it wasn't always a good idea to get involved. In a rabbinical book called the book of Sirach, chapter 12, it says, when you do a good deed, make sure you know who is benefiting from it. No good ever comes to a person who gives comfort to the wicked. It is not a righteous act. Don't give them food or they will use your kindness against you. Every good thing you do for such people will bring you twice as much trouble in return. Why? Because the most high hates sinners and God will punish them. So give to good people, but do not help sinners. Here's the problem. The priest is riding by in his donkey. He looks over. He sees a man in the ditch. And the priest has no idea whether or not this is a good man. See, the problem is if the priest goes over and he helps this man in the ditch, but the guy turns out to be a scoundrel, he turns out to be a sinner, and the priest helps him get healthy and restores him to a life where he can go about his sinning, suddenly the priest is working at odds with God. And God, who was trying to judge the man, will judge the priest for empowering the man to continue to sin. 
Because the priest didn't know who he was, because the man was anonymous, the priest couldn't afford to care. Never mind the fact that um, the Jewish law says that a priest is not allowed to touch a corpse or else they become ritually unclean. In fact, the Jewish law says the priest is not allowed to come within 12 feet of a corpse. You can't even get close enough to a corpse to see if the corpse is a corpse, especially when they're lying in the ditch half dead. The oral law said that a priest was not allowed to come into contact with someone who wasn't Jewish, with a Gentile. So now the priest has an extra problem. Even if this is a good man, the priest still can't get close enough to see if the man is alive and to see if the man is a Jew, because only if he's alive and if he's a Jew would the priest even consider getting involved because he doesn't want to make himself ritually and spiritually unclean. Because, this is the third thing, if he becomes spiritually unclean, he's coming from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's probably just been serving in the temple for the past two weeks. And he's on his way back home to be with his family. If he becomes ritually unclean, he has to turn around and head back to Jerusalem for another week to participate in a purity ceremony, which is another week away from his family. Never mind the fact that if he goes back for the purity ceremony, there was a part of the ceremony where a gong was sounded and all the priests who were impure had to go stand at the east gate of the temple and they were publicly shamed in front of their peers for allowing themselves to become ritually unclean and the man's reputation would have been ruined. As the priest approaches and he sees this man in the ditch, he's doing all of these calculations and he decides that it is religiously far too dangerous to get involved. I think sometimes, and, and to get involved because he, because he doesn't know who the man is, it's not personal for him. I was going to say, I think sometimes we use similar kinds of rationale to justify our non-participation in bringing healing to a broken world. We say things like, well, if I give them money, they're just going to go use it on drugs. I will be enabling a sinner to continue to sin. So maybe I'm helping by not helping, by not giving them money. Or we think things like, well, I don't really approve of their lifestyle. And so if I get involved and I begin to help and I bring healing, you know, participate in healing and restoration in their lives, all I'm doing is affirming a lifestyle I don't agree with. Or we wonder, will God judge me for participating with sinful people because as I'm trying to bring help? Or what will my religious friends say if I get too involved with a group like that? Sometimes we even use scriptures. If you pay attention to the news over the last couple of years, you will have heard um, conservative evangelical leaders using the Bible to justify the migrant crisis at the southern border of the U.S., Quoting Romans chapter 13 and saying, well, if these illegal aliens had just obeyed the law, they wouldn't be in the trouble they were in. Or sometimes you'll hear people quote Ecclesiastes chapter 1 when they talk about climate change. And they say, well, the, it says the Lord has established the earth forever. We can't destroy this place. It doesn't matter what we do. And in a whole variety of ways, when it's not personal... We allow our religion to interfere with our participation 
in bringing healing to a broken world. Another man came down the road. Verse 32 says, so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, if the, the priest, who was a paid temple worker, who was kind of like your location pastor, um, the Levite would sort of be like a key volunteer in your location, somebody that everybody recognized. They were temple helpers. And as temple helpers and who weren't priests, they weren't upheld to the same sort of religious standard that the priests were held up to. The Levite would have had some freedom to get more involved than the priest would have had the freedom to do. And you can see it in the story. The Levite actually gets more curious than the priest. It says of the priest that he came down the road, but it says of the Levite that he came to the place. It seems like maybe the priest or the Levite got to that 12 foot line or maybe even went beyond to see if the man was still alive to see if he could determine whether or not this was a Jewish man or a Gentile. But either way, the Levite had a greater freedom to get more involved than the priest. I think the Levite's struggle is what would he do? The priest is wealthy and riding a donkey and could have loaded the man onto the donkey and brought him to safety. The Levite is poor and he's walking. And so what help could he really provide? Maybe he could go over and provide some first aid and bandage some wounds, but then what? Walk away and leave the guy to just die in the ditch? Or maybe worse, sit down and stay with the man and risk being attacked yourself by the same robbers that beat this guy up? I think the Levite, came and assessed the situation and seeing that it wasn't anybody that he knew, it wasn't anybody that he felt personally responsible for, decided there wasn't anything he could do. And he went on his way. I think sometimes we decide when it's not personal when it doesn't affect us or someone we care about directly, we find it easier to decide to not get involved because oftentimes we feel like there's no way for us to make a difference. If you were here last week, um, you would have felt the paralysis, that, that impending sense of doom, watching the uh, two-degree countdown clock or count up clock on the screen realizing that there's literally nothing you can do to stop it getting the sense that maybe recycled coffee cups at church isn't going to be enough <laughs> I laugh and it's not funny we feel the same thing when we think about the way that indigenous people's treaty rights are being violated every single day Maybe we feel the same thing when we think about how our migrant worker friends have their visa statuses that hang in the balance every single day. How housing prices in Niagara and housing insecurity, they seem like insurmountable problems. And we ask ourselves, I just don't know what I could do that would actually make a difference. And since we can't think of what we could do to actually make a difference, we decide instead to do nothing. And we can afford to do nothing because it's not personal. It doesn't affect us 
or anybody that we care about directly. And so we pass by on the other side. Jesus says there was one more person who came down the road. Verse 33 says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn to take care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. (laughs) The priest and the Levite came down the road and decided that they could afford to not get involved because this was not one of their people or at the very least they decided to not they didn't have to get involved because they wasn't sure that this was one of their people the Samaritan Jesus says comes down the road and decides to get involved even though he is almost absolutely sure that this is not one of his people A Samaritan was traveling outside of his home province of Samaria in the southern. He was traveling through the southern Jewish province of Judea. The man stripped and half dead lying in a ditch. 99.99% sure that man was Jewish. Not a Samaritan. And the Jewish folk hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated them right back every bit as much as the Palestinians and Israelis do today. That man who was in all likelihood a Jewish man lying in the ditch would have been someone who went to synagogue every single week and as a part of the service prayed to Yahweh thanking God that God did not make that Jewish man a Samaritan and praying that God would exclude the Jewish people from the life to come in the way we say it, praying that the Samaritans would all go to hell. And yet... The Samaritan looks and he sees a man who he knows with almost absolute certainty is not one of his people. Not one of his tribe who he knows with almost absolutely certainty he is under absolutely no obligation to care. That he could pass by on the other side and it would make no difference to him whatsoever. And yet the Samaritan chooses to get involved. To undo all of the hurt that has been done to this man. First, he undoes the hurt of the Levite who failed to provide first aid. Instead, the Samaritan goes to the man and he pours um, oil on the wounds to soften them up. He pours wine on the wounds to disinfect them. And then he bandages them up to stop the bleeding. Unlike the priest who could have transported the man to safety but didn't, the Samaritan loads the man onto his donkey and walks with him up to 17 miles through the desert into the Jewish stronghold of Jericho. As an enemy behind enemy lines, he walks into the city of Jericho, stays at an inn, which in the ancient world was always taking your life into your own hands. But he stays at a Jewish inn in a Jewish town as a Samaritan man holding a, a, a bloodied, unconscious Jewish man in his custody. And he decides to take his life into his own hands to stay the night and to make sure that the man is taken care of. 
Finally, he undoes the damage of the Levite and the priest. In the end, he undoes the damage of the robber who took what the man had and beat him until he was half dead. The Samaritan pays whatever he has in order to see the man revived to life. Though it didn't affect him, though he didn't have to care, though for him it was almost certainly not personal, the Samaritan chooses to be involved with a love that is active and compassionate and costly. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. Mother Teresa said, no one will care unless you make it personal. Jesus says, why don't you make it personal and begin to actually care? Why don't you make it personal and decide that even though it doesn't affect you, even though this doesn't have to do with you, that you're going to engage with an active love, not doing what you can't do and fixing all the world's problems, but doing what you can do and then asking after that what else you can do. Why not choose to care, to make it personal and to care by getting involved with a compassionate love that doesn't allow all of the screwed up ways that our religion interferes with actually caring about other people and deciding instead that we're just going to love people the way Jesus did no matter what. Choosing to get involved with a costly love, not living like the robbers who were living for what they could get out of life, living like the Samaritan whose entire posture was about what he could give back to give life to someone else. Because that's the Jesus way. What the Samaritan did was live a love that looks like Jesus. In Romans chapter five, verse seven, It says this, we can understand someone choosing to die for a person worth dying for, worth dying for. We can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice, but God put love on the line for us by offering God's son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatever to God. Another translation says, while we were still enemies of God. You know what the love of God looks like? The love of God is a love that is active. Sending the son, Jesus Christ. It is a love that is compassionate. Not allowing it to be dictated by a person's worthiness or unworthiness. Or not waiting to be inspired by someone who was good or or noble enough to love. A love that was costly, that gave itself up in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, not because we had earned it, not because God had to, but because God chose to. Instead of waiting until it's personal in order to get involved, why don't we get involved and make it personal? Because I'll tell you, friends, when you make it personal, you'll be surprised at just how personal things can get.
So I think the experience of being a part of uh, the Harvest Kitchen was somewhat kind of like, well, I'm performing a duty, I'm doing a good deed to try to help people out. And uh, I think that's initially kind of the expectation that I had or the, uh, the focus that I had on, on the evening. And uh, I think that first evening kind of blew that out a little bit and started to get a picture of what really we could do with this within the community. Sitting around the table, the people wanted to have conversation. You could tell that they were interested in more than just the food. I think their experience was getting very little of that kind of uh, relationship, but they, you could tell that they were looking for it. And so when you would walk around and have a bit of a conversation, they were willing to talk, they were willing to share, they wanted to get to know who you were. And uh, we wanted to get to know who they were. And I think that was different from what they've ever experienced. changed my perspective in knowing that that um, even existed out there. That was some stuff that, hearing some of those tough things about um, addiction and um, mental health and homelessness and how that cycle kind of continues, it wasn't anything that I was familiar with. So it started to open my eyes a little bit. Um, my God was opening my eyes to some of the, the those difficulties and changing in my heart to be more compassionate towards someone who might have those things in their life that I, I didn't immediately identify with. So we had them in, and I realized very quickly that potato salad was not a hit, so I haven't made that since. But we had them around our table, we had some great laughs, some conversation, some awkward silences, and overall it was a great experience. I also remember one specific moment. One of my friends was sitting back and I had said, go help yourself. It was a buffet style, go help yourself. And he said, I always go last. I said, well, you're my guest, you need to go first. He said, back home, I always let everyone else go first and then I take what's left. I have to make sure that they have enough food. And it struck me at that moment, I have never once thought about if my kids were gonna have enough food. And here was someone, a friend of mine, in my house, telling me that that's something that he thinks about. It was an eye-opening experience for me. So I just decided to, one uh, day early meetings, to just uh, go and sit at a table, and it happened to be the table with, uh, with Dwayne at it, and we struck up a conversation. He's very open, very talkative, uh, speaks his mind really clearly, and uh, doesn't hide behind anything. And, which is good. So we've had some really interesting conversations about all kinds of things. And then uh, after sitting there with a number of times, he, he said to me, so we haven't scared you away yet from the table? And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, some of the other volunteers, we've scared them away from the table because they've been too open and too, uh, too talkative. And I said, well, no, I don't feel threatened in any way. It's just great to be able to sit here and have a conversation. And it got to the point where he even said, well, um, if you want to go to the collective kitchen, um, if you go, I'll go with you. And so uh, we went and it was a fantastic night. He was just so excited, so enthralled with the whole evening of just cooking meals and making food and taking home some stuff. And it was just a fabulous night. And we had, had a great time. And uh, so it's just been a real blessing just to get to know him and his wife, Tammy. And it's really, uh, really been good.
everybody brings their own trauma to the table, right? We've all had difficulties in life. So while I may not have understood addiction, I know what it's like to feel lonely. I know what it's like to feel desperation. I know what it's feel like to feel depressed. So that's the part that I can connect. Those were where it was connecting. It wasn't about the addiction, because that's just an, I that's an issue. And homelessness is an issue, obviously, but um, compassion for another person who feels broken, just like I am, that's where the connection was starting to forge, starting to get that relational equity with someone. Because actually, deep down, we're just people. And it, it took the, that prompting from God to kind of reshape everything and have that new lens to look through. At the end of the day, we're all just people. That is precisely the point of the story that we looked at this morning. The question that hangs over the entire story is this. If I am to love my neighbor with all of my heart and all of my soul, if I'm to love my neighbor as much as I love myself, then who is the neighbor that I'm obligated to love? Who is it that I have to care about? And the answer that Jesus gives is this. Instead of asking, who do I have to care about? Why don't you ask, why don't you just start to care and see what God will do? God has already loved us with a love that is active and compassionate and costly in the life and death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And now that love, if you've put your faith and life in the hands of Jesus, now that love resides in you. Why don't we just decide that even when it doesn't affect us, even when it's not someone that we know or care about, even when it's not personal, this time it's personal. We're not going to wait until we care in order to get involved. We're going to get involved to demonstrate just how much we care. Because when you make it personal, you'd be surprised at just how personal it gets. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love with which you have loved us. We certainly didn't earn or deserve or prove ourselves to be worthy of that love. It's not because we were so good and noble that you decided to come and rescue us in the person of Jesus Christ. You came to rescue us in the person of Jesus Christ, even though we didn't deserve or earn it. Father, we can't, we confess, just straight up, we can't love the way that you love. But your love through Christ has now filled us by your spirit. Make your love our love. So that as we open our hearts to the world, as we choose to get involved so that we'll care, when we, as we choose to make it personal, God, we pray that your active, compassionate, costly love would spill out of our lives. 
as we get to participate in being the midwives who help to bring to birth this new thing that you're doing in the world, in making everything brand new, in bringing healing to the brokenness that's all around us. Would you fill us with your love so that we can be those people together with you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.